Chapter the Twenty Second of the Manchester Man by Mrs. G. Linnaeus Banks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Clegg. However grateful Mrs. Ashton might be, she never lost sight of her personal dignity, and had no idea of admitting Jabez on terms of equality after that first reception. In his helpless condition, he required attention which she could not condescend to render personally. Yet she was as little inclined to delegate the duty to Kezia, who was never over well disposed towards him, and might have resented the call to wait on apprentice lad, or to Sicily, who was too young to have the run of a young man's chamber. It was like herself to hit on a happy mean, and invite Bess Hume at once to satisfy her own longings, and meet the requirements of the case, by waiting on her foster-child in his helplessness, bringing with her her own boy, now two years old, to be committed to willing Cicely's care when the mother herself was engaged. Yet the apprentice never again sank into the old ruts. His bed in the attic was turned over to his successor. From that parlour where he had lain and listened to Augusta's music and Parson Brooks's dictum, where Mrs. Ashton had placed his pillows, and Ellen Chadwick had supplied his wants with such intuitive perception at tea-time. From that room he went to a chamber on an upper floor, furnished neatly but plainly with due regard to comfort. There was a mahogany camp bedstead, draped with chintz of most extraordinary device. The bed was of feathers, not flock. An oak chest of drawers, which did duty for a dressing-table, stood by the window, which itself overlooked the yard and on the top stood a small oval swing-looking-glass. There were small strips of carpet along the two sides of the bed, which did not touch the wall, an almost triangular washstand in one corner, and near the middle of the room a rush-bottomed chair and a small tripod table. There was also a cushioned easy-chair, which had a suggestiveness of being there for that special occasion only. And Jabez, who on his first glance around began to speculate whether the whole world would not vanish with his convalescence, was reassured when he saw that his wooden box had been brought from the attic and stood against the wall. The six-foot bronzed-bearded man of forty remains a child to the mother who bore him, or the woman who nursed him, and as she had laid him in his cradle when a baby, Bess helped Jabez to his new bed, fed him with the beef tea which Kezia had prepared, for a wonder without a grumble, gave him the cooling draught Mr. Hurtley had sent in, smoothed his pillows for repose, and kissed his brow with a God bless thee, much as she had done when he was an ailing child, but with all the access of motherliness her own maternity had given. Nevertheless, he did not sleep readily. Neither Bessie's soothing hand, nor the soft bed superinduced slumber. He was modest, and Mr. Clegg haunted him. He could not see the connection between his impulsive rush forward to check the yeoman's plunging steed and his employer's recognition of the service rendered. I only did my duty, he debated with himself as he lay there, with a mere streak of light from the glimmering rushlight showing between the closely drawn curtains. I only did my duty. Anyone else would have done the same in my place. If I had once thought of the consequences, and grasped the reins deliberately, there would have been some bravery in that. But I never thought of the sword, not I. I only thought of poor old Mr. Chadwick and Molly, and I'm sure Mr. Mabbott's ready hand did as good a service as mine. Only I happened to get hurt. Yes, that's it, and they're sorry for me. 
I wonder if that ruffianly fellow did know whom he was striking at. I hardly think he did. He was so very tipsy. If I fancied he did, I... But he could not. He was just blind drunk. What a pity, for such a handsome fellow not older than I am, and a gentleman's son too. Forgive him. I don't think I've much to forgive. I'd bear the pain twice over for all the kind things that have been said and done since. Tea in the parlour with Parson Brooks and all, and this handsome bedroom, handsome only in untutored eyes, and all the thanks I have had for so little, and oh, the bliss of holding Augusta's delicate hand in mine, and hearing the music those white fingers made. It's worth the pain three times over. And Mr. Clegg, too. Mr. Clegg! How like a gentleman it does sound! Will anybody call me Mr. Clegg, besides Miss Chadwick? How fond she must be of her father, from the way she thanked me. Ah, Jabez, what oculist can cure blindness such as thine? If less consecutive, still in some such current ran the young man's thoughts, until chaos came, and his closed eyes saw innumerable Mr. Cleggs written on walls and floor and curtains, and a delicious symphony seemed to chorus the words, and lap him in Elysium. After that, once each day, Mrs. Ashton paid him a brief visit of inspection and inquiry, generally timed so as to meet the surgeon. Mr. Ashton, with less of a ceremony, dropped in occasionally to bring him a newspaper, book or pamphlet, to beguile the hours, and was not above loitering for a pleasant chat on matters indoors and out, the state of political feeling, and of business, in a manner so friendly Jabez was at a loss to account for it. Once or twice Augusta tapped at the door to ask if Jabez was better, to hope he would soon be well, and the simple words ran through his brain with a thousand chimerical meanings. Joshua Brooks paid him a couple of visits, brought in papers of sweetmeats and messages from Mrs. Clues, and a Latin testament and a worn Aeneid from his own stores, as a little light reading. Mrs. Chadwick, too, made her appearance at his bedside, with kindly and grateful words from her husband, and amongst them he was in a fair way of becoming elevated into a hero to his own hurt. Simon Clegg, who pulled off his thick Sunday shoes in the kitchen, and went upstairs in his stocking feet, lest he should make a clatter and spoil the carpets, counteracted the mischief, and somewhat clipped the pinions of soaring imagination. Jabez, his arm bandaged and sustained by a sling, lay with his head against the straight high back of his padded chair, between the window and the fireplace, which glowed, not with live coals, but with a bow-pot of sunflowers and hollyhocks from Simon's garden. At his feet lay little Sam, fast asleep, with his fat arms round the neck of Nelson, the black retriever, that had somehow contrived to sneak past Kezia with his tail between his legs, and to follow Bess upstairs, where he had established himself in perfect content. Simon greeted his foster-son with bated breath, awed, no doubt, by the lamp-bearing statues in the hall and on the staircase, and hardly raised his voice above a whisper while he stayed. He had much to tell, which the reader already knows, but he took his leave with quite a long oration, impressed, no doubt, by the comfort in that chamber, as well as by the grandeur in rooms of which he had caught a glimpse through open doors. Jabez himself, being still feeble, had spoken but little. "'More lad,' said he, "'this is a grand place, but do not you let it mak' you proud, 
and I hope as you're thankful you have fallen among sich coined folk. Indeed I am. You did nowt, but what and were your duty, my lad, as I trust thou allers will, and thou's getten a mester and missus i ten thousand to max o mitch on a cut in apprentice's arm. Aye, though it were got, he saving one of their own kin. Look you, Jabez, all the mesters o ever saw afore, thouters prentices, body and soul, were their own, and you've lit on your feet, o can tell you, and you conna do too mitch for such folk. O see they makin a man on you, and dunnot you spoil o by thinkin you on earnt it, and anna reet to it. We're unprofitable sarvants, the best on us, and dunnot you harbour any malice against chap as chopped at you. Them yeomanry cavalry were as drunk as fiddlers and as blind as bats. They took their chance with rook and came off better than some folk. So thank God it's no war and bear no malice and thank God as sent you there in the nick of time. In little more than a fortnight, Jabez was downstairs again, although his arm, not being thoroughly healed, yet needed support and he was not hurried into the warehouse. Neither was he again invited to join the family, Mrs. Ashton having objected to Mr. Ashton's proposition. It would lift the young man out of his sphere, William, and do him more harm than good. Only very strong heads can stand sudden elevation, and it is well to make no more haste than good speed. But Mr. Ashton's just so was less definite than ordinary, and he took a second pinch of snuff unawares with a prolonged emphasis which supplied the place of words. To the observant, Mr. Ashton's snuff-box contained as much eloquence as did Lord Burley's celebrated wig. He had taken a liking to the lad from the first, paid very little deference to Mrs. Grundy, and gave Jabez credit for a stronger head than did his more cautious and philosophic lady. Yet Jabez, to his surprise, found that his little room downstairs had undergone a transformation. It was no longer a bare office fitted only with a desk and stool. Desk and stool were there still, but a carpet, hanging shelves, a few useful books and other furniture had been introduced, the result being a compact parlour. Mrs. Ashton had her own way of showing goodwill. His previous application to work in that room, when his fellow apprentices in over hours were cracking jokes on the kitchen settle, lounging about in the yard, tormenting or being tormented by Kezia, had served somewhat to isolate and lift him above them, albeit he took his meals in the kitchen with the rest. This separation was now confirmed by orders Kezia received, serve Clegg's dinner in his own room, orders which Kezia resented with asperity, and at least three days ill-humour, and which James declined to execute. He was not going to disgrace his cloth by waiting on prentice lads, ready-handed Cicely came to the rescue, and took the office on herself, amid the banter of the kitchen, which the quick-witted maid returned with right good will and right good temper. Permission to receive his friends in his own room occasionally had been graciously accorded by Mrs. Ashton herself, with the characteristic observation, "'They are worthy people, Jabez Clegg, and you owe them a son's duty. Besides, you need some relaxation. The overstrained bow is apt to snap, and all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Altogether he was more than satisfied, 
He was not demonstrative, but his heart swelled as he felt within himself that all these little things were stepping-stones upwards, and he mentally resolved to mount them fairly. He recognised that he was rising, and ere the week was out he found that others recognised it also. His blood-stained garments had been removed, whither he knew not, and he had to fall back on his grey frieze Sunday suit. Be sure, he began to calculate the chances of getting a fresh one. As he was able to go out, he was employed on outdoor business until his arm should regain its full vitality, and one of his errands was with a note to Mr. Chadwick's tailor in King Street. At first he thought that there was some mistake when the fraction of a man proceeded, without more ado, to take his measure. Saturday night proved there had been no mistake. On his bed, accompanied by a very kind note from Mr. Chadwick, written with his left hand, lay not only a well-cut, well-made suit of clothes, but a hat, white linen shirts, neckcloths and hose. Did ever a young girl turn up her back hair, or young man assume his first coat indifferently? To Jabez, the foundling, the blue-coat apprentice, this was not merely a first coat, not merely a badge of approaching manhood. The whole outfit, provided as it was by his master's brother-in-law, seemed a recognition of the station he was henceforth to fill. No clerk in the counting-house was so well equipped as he, when he stood before his oval swing glass, for the first time far too small, and endeavoured to survey himself therein that fine September Sunday morning. I will not presume to say that he looked the conventional gentleman in that suit of glossy brown broadcloth and beaver hat. I will not say that he did not feel stiff in them, only use gives ease. But this I will say, that a more manly figure never gave shape to garments, or a more noble head to a hat, albeit there was more of strength than beauty in the face it shaded. His forehead was broad and well developed. The reflective as well as the perceptive faculties were there. There was just a slight defensive rise on the L-straight nose. The eyebrows were full, save where a scar broke the line of one. Firm but pleasant were mouth and dimpled chin, and the lower jaw was somewhat massive. But his full grey eyes, dark almost to blackness and standing far apart, were clear and deep as wells, where truth lay hid though deep emotion had power to kindle them with the luminosity of stars. I am afraid he was not the only one on whom Parson Gatliff's eloquence was thrown away that Sabbath morning. If he looked up at the blue-coat boys in the Chetham Gallery with their quaint blue robes and neat bands, to throw memory back and imagination forward, others were doing likewise. From old Simon in his free seat, to his envious fellow prentices in the pew, whose mocking grimaces drew upon them the sharp censure of the beadle. Party spirit was then at a white heat. Had Peterloo been written on his forehead, it could not have marked him out for curious eyes more surely than his sling. Greetings, not altogether congratulatory, followed him through the churchyard, but old Simon caught his left hand in a tremulous grasp, his eyes moist with proud emotion. Tom Hume beamed upon him, and Mrs. Clues, energetic as ever, overtook them a few yards from the chapter-house, just as Joshua Brooks emerged from the door. "'Well, my lad, I'm glad to see you at church again,' she exclaimed, shaking him warmly by the left hand. 
I hardly knew you in your fine clothes. They've made quite a gentleman of you. We shall have to call you Mr. Clegg now, I reckon. Now, Mother Clues, don't you give Jabez humbug of that sort. It's sweet, but not wholesome. Fine feathers make fine birds. He's as proud as a peacock already. Mr. Clegg, indeed. And him, apprentice lad, not out of his time. Let him stick to the name we gave him at his baptism. It's worth all your fine misters. And Joshua turned off, muttering, Mr. Clegg, indeed, as he went away. Neither the old woman in her antiquated gown and kerchief covered much, nor the old parson in his cassock and square cap, modulated their loud voices. Jabez blushed painfully. Both had touched sensitive chords. But others had heard the Mr. Clegg, and he heard it again, from Kezia and the apprentices, in every tone of mockery and derision. Then it travelled into the warehouse. He bore it with set teeth through many a painful week, until the title stuck to him, and the taunt was forgotten in the force of habit. End of chapter the 22nd